Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast. Uh, I'm your host uh, this morning, Ian Lewins, a PEM consultant based in Derby. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome onto the programme uh, Professor Robert Tullow, who is a consultant paediatric cardiologist based in Bristol, uh, who's going to talk with us uh, about Kawasaki disease. Uh, so good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Ian. No, this is uh, a really nice opportunity and I'm looking forward to having a good discussion about Kawasaki. Excellent. So Kawasaki disease is the thing that all medical students know about, I guess. It's the one thing when they come to paediatrics, they know about Kawasaki disease for, for reasons I'm not entirely clear on. Um, but actually, as we go on, maybe we forget a bit about Kawasaki disease. So it'd be really good to just have a general chat through. Um, so starting right at the start, what is Kawasaki disease? What do we mean by Kawasaki disease? Yes, that's a really good question. It is not as simple as it sounds. Um, however, I mean, most people say that Kawasaki is a uh, medium-sized vessel arteritis, so that the the medial, middle size arteries in the body are inflamed. Um, now, what we don't know is what causes it, um, and we don't quite know exactly why um, the different features are displayed and why different people have different amounts of the different features. We know that there's um, a genetic influence. Um, we've done worldwide studies showing that certain genes controlling the IgG receptor are important in the way you display your Kawasaki disease. And we know that certain groups of people are much more likely to get it than others. Uh, as the name suggests, it was first really found in Japan and in the Far East, and still there, it's about 10 times as common as it is in the West. However, now in the UK, it is becoming more and more common. Uh, and it is more common than many types of meningitis. It's more common than rheumatic fever. Uh, and it is the fastest growing uh, cause of inflammatory cardiac disease um, that we have. So many children will have it. Uh, and luckily, it's mild. Uh, it tends to present in the younger children, typically between about six months and five years, uh, but you can get it outside of those ages. Uh, and typically it presents with just non-specific symptoms. Because we don't know the cause, we don't have a diagnostic test yet, although there are research studies looking at possibilities. And therefore we make the diagnosis based on the classical features, the symptoms, so diagnostic criteria, if you like. So everybody has a fever to start with. And that is always for the first day of the fever is the first day of the illness. Uh, and we don't know what triggers it off. But over the next few days, a constellation of symptoms can appear. Uh, so some children will have a rash, just a non-specific red macular papula blotchy rash uh, that occurs anywhere over the body. Um, and this along with the other symptoms, it may come and go. So they may not all be there at the same time. The other features are that you may get redness and swelling of the fingers and toes. You get red eyes, but they're not sticky. There's no conjunctivitis as such. Uh, you may have a swollen gland in the neck, which may be very big, so big that people take biopsies of it because they're worried there might be something else. Right. Uh, and these, these symptoms, along with a sore mouth, and cracked, dry lips, red lips uh, are the classic features for Kawasaki disease. So if you have the full full house, you'd have the rash, the fever, well, so you start with the fever, then you have the rash, 
the eyes, the red fingers, the um, red mouth, uh, and the glands of the neck. So uh, those are the features that add up. But some people don't have all the features, uh, and some, as I said, they come and go over the next few days. So that's what Kawasaki typically is. Yeah, and it's for, for the humble uh, PEM physician like myself, this is always something that you're worried about. Is you know the number of kids that we see with fever and rash is enormous, and and amongst those, trying to pick out the, the one or two that that might be Kawasaki disease is is really challenging. I mean, is one of the key things just to have the, the that as a differential in the back of your mind? Is that one of the key key things you would pass on? I think that's really important. And as you say, it's difficult if you're in general pediatrics or primary care and emergency medicine to, to identify the case. However, one of the key things is that it keeps on going. Uh, and there aren't that many children who just got a fever and a rash for five days and no other illnesses have come up. They haven't developed meningitis. They haven't developed diarrhea and vomiting. They have nothing else. They, they have just the inflammatory symptoms. So they're really miserable uh, and still going at five days without any obvious cause. So that's really when the penny should drop. You say, look, I've seen this child a couple of times, either in your primary care practice or in the emergency department, uh, and it's still got a rash, it's still got glands, it's still got red eyes, it's still really miserable, really irritable, uh, and we don't have any other other cause. Uh, you may have given it antibiotics at two or three days. It made no difference. Mm. You may have done some investigations and just found high um, inflammatory markers in your blood tests, but you've not grown any organisms. You've not got streptococcal throat infection. There's nothing else that you could think of that could possibly be the cause. So by the time you get to your five days, you'd be thinking, hmm, now I just need to think, is this possibly Kawasaki disease? Is this something that we should be thinking about? Because it's really important to treat it at those five days. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for somebody in, say, primary care who sees this child and it, it sort of flags up in their mind, if it's sort of three or four days into this, is it reasonable to say, well, OK, maybe this is, but I'm going to bring them back in a couple of days and have another look at them. And You know, that's something potentially we could do in the emergency department. So could you go, hmm, maybe, but I'll see you in a few days? I think that's really sensible, and I like the sort of safety net approach. Uh, and actually, we did a, a, a UK-wide study, uh, and we found that 82% of all children who have Kawasaki disease have been to see their GP. Uh, and uh, so the penny could drop at some point. And if you're two or three days into it, you're not sure, see them a day or two later, still going on, really, they should be referred into hospital, and somebody should think or ask the question, is this Kawasaki disease? Okay, so I've got my child. I've, I've, they've been features as you've described. In terms of investigations, is there anything useful that we can do in the emergency department, which which are not just ruling out other things? So things like ASO teeters and are any of the inflammatory markers and and full blood counts are they of any use diagnostically? Well, that's a good question. ASO teeters do not rule out Kawasaki disease. Um, if you think most children have streptococcus in their throats, uh, and it's perfectly possible to have streptococcus and Kawasaki disease. So we don't do ASO teachers now in terms of ruling out Kawasaki disease. Um, however, as you say, doing the blood test can be really helpful. If a child's got a bit of a temperature and a bit of a rash, 
then yes, they could have a viral infection, but they won't have very high inflammatory markers, for example, a CRP uh, on their blood test. And if you see a child who's six months old, a rash of temperature, and he's got a CRP of 150, this is not a viral infection. Uh, and so it could be a really useful uh, blood test saying something else going on, it's not a virus, I need to think what it is. There are other features that could be really helpful, especially markers of bad Kawasaki disease, are the other things that you see with inflammatory vasculitis. So a low sodium, a low hemoglobin, uh, a low albumin, and a low platelet count. Now, there's a lot of confusion over platelet count mm. um, because people think high platelet count is Kawasaki disease, but the platelet count doesn't go up as part of the inflammatory process till about 10 days into the illness. And by the time it started rising, you've missed it. You're too late. So really, you know, any inflammatory uh, vasculitis where the endothelium is inflamed, this consumes uh, the inflammatory processes, including your platelets, and you have a low platelet count in the worst cases. The other markers of a worst case are typically a child who's under six months uh, and a child who's boy uh, and a child who's got those markers that we've talked about, the, the low sodium, uh, low albumin, low hemoglobin, low platelets, uh, and the very high inflammatory markers. Those are really red flags, and they need to be investigated and treated very early. Yeah, I, I, that's the thing that sort of from from a from sort of front door perspective is always worrying. Is there's this time limit on I must get this I must get the diagnosis soon and start appropriate treatment soon. Um, just to explain what why is there a, such a sort of a an urgency to get this diagnosed well you might i mean well ask that question you might well ask why a pediatric cardiologist is talking about an inflammatory disease why not <laughs> a disease person or a vasculitis doctor or um, rheumatologist um but the reason is that the main complication that people worry about are that you get inflamed coronary arteries these are also medium-sized arteries and they get inflamed uh, and in about a third of children uh, you get coronary artery aneurysms. Uh, and if they're not treated, they have lifelong consequences for children um, with lots of sequelae, which we can go on to later. So it's really important that the treatment happens at five days or even four days, if you're sure it's a case, um, because that is the best known method of stopping the progress to coronary artery aneurysms. The other things like a rash or a dry mouth, these generally settle uh, and there really aren't long-term consequences of most, but not all, of the other features. The coronary arteries are what we're really worried about, and we have to protect the children. So the consequence of missing it is a lifelong sentence uh, for that child with serious consequences. So uh, absolutely, and you know that's always the, the worry for, for us at the front door. And if I'm seeing this child and I think, actually, do you know what? I've done my bloods. I, they've got the features really consistent with it. Um, what sort of should pediatrics be doing next? Obviously, this child needs to come in and be further investigated. Um, what's the sort of ideal sequence of events? Is it saying, I strongly suspect this child's got Kawasaki disease, we need to start treatment? Um, or do they need further investigations like an echo next before you start treatment? Well, the most important thing is that most children won't present to a an all-singing pediatric cardiology department. They'll be in primary care, they'll be in secondary care, maybe in a district general hospital 
where things like echocardiograms by somebody who knows what they're doing is not as easy. And therefore, the most important thing to do is to start treatment early. Um, and there are very few consequences to treating somebody who didn't have it, but terrible consequences if you don't treat somebody who does have it. Right. And therefore, starting the intravenous immunoglobulin treatment, as soon as you think that this is Kawasaki disease, is the most important, along with high-dose aspirin. Fine. So we, we've, we crack on, get that done. Uh, and as you say, you can always backtrack if, if you, you don't sort of, if you change your mind later, but, but important, not, you know, crucial not to miss. Um, is there a sort of, say I can get hold of a, a cardiologist who can do the echoes. Is there a sort of a, an optimal time to do that, do you think? Well, again, that's a very good question. And the rules have changed in this in the last couple of years. It used to be that you could do an echo sometime and it didn't really matter when. However, because the condition is getting worse and worse, and because of the association with COVID, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's really important um, that at your earliest opportunity, you do get that echocardiogram. Now, that doesn't make you decide whether you get treatment or not, because that decision is based on the clinical grounds of whether the child has the symptoms or not, but it can affect other management. So some children who present early on have already started to develop the coronary artery aneurysms. And then you have to change track and you have to give a different sort of treatment on top of the intravenous immunoglobulin and the aspirin. So it doesn't change what you do at first, but it does mean you have to do other things in order to keep that child safe. Yeah, so I guess from from me based in a, a DGH, it's it's starting that and then taking further cardiology advice when we we've got the echoes. Um, how long does this sort of if you're starting the immunoglobulins and the, the aspirin, is there a sort of recommended course or or do you kind of see see how the child goes? No, and in fact, you know, if you see a a child and you're pretty sure you've got um, Kawasaki. Uh, you give the immunoglobulin, which is a, gr- a dose of two grams per kilogram of body weight over six to eight, 12 hours. Um, the parents will say to you, I've got a different child. They've settled down. They're no longer ir- irritable. Um, they're much, they've got my child back again. Um, and that could be really, really useful um, as a diagnostic proof, if you like, um, that they've got dramatically better. Mm. Uh, and of course, by the time I get called in, it's always uh, after the first presentation. So the child's all happy and smiling by the time I come along to do the scan, which is great. So I'm more than happy to let my general paediatric and <laughs> doctors handle the difficult situation at the beginning. Um, and you mentioned sort of a, a range of illness. C- can these children range from, you know, p- generally pretty well, but, but a bit febrile and a bit grumpy to, to extremely sick? Yes, and we recognize a a wide spectrum. Luckily, uh, most children have a fairly mild dose. As I say, two-thirds of children really do pretty well, uh, and it's all treated and done and dusted, and they go home, see them once or twice in outpatients, not a long-term issue. However, some children end up with nasty coronary artery aneurysms, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit, and some children uh, can present really, really very sick. Um, with um, a pericardial effusion, needing emergency drainage or valve leaking, needing emergency heart surgery, or the heart muscles just not pumping properly, uh, and they need to go to the intensive care unit and have intravenous inotropic medication or even 
extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, life support medication uh, and treatment in order to pull them through. Uh, and unfortunately, just a few of them will not survive. Um, so it can be really nasty, but luckily that's the tip of the iceberg. And for most of the children, you treat them early, then you save a lot of long-term problems. Yeah, I, I was going to say, in your experience, do are the children who are sicker, do they tend to be the ones who, for whatever reason, have not been treated early and are sort of now being thought of, you know, 10 days, two weeks down the line? Or, or does it vary, does it vary on, on presentation, even if you do treat them early? Yes, it does vary. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Yes, you're right that those children who have the long-term coronary artery aneurysm sequelae often are those who are missed and are treated late. Um, but there are some who present early just in a collapsed heap, and they tend to be the younger children with straightforward Kawasaki disease now. Um, they tend to be the children aged three, four, five, six months who get very nasty um, heart involvement, poor heart muscle function, fluid around the heart, and uh, may even cross off their coronary arteries acutely. Um, so uh, it, it is a bit difficult uh, to try to predict who is worst. Yeah. Um, I've seen other sort of people mention things like incomplete Kawasaki disease or atypical Kawasaki disease. Uh, is, is that something that you sort of would talk about or recognise? Yes, and I think this is the danger. Um, and this is one reason why people are, are scared about it. Um, it's, be honest, if you're a competent paediatrician, recognising somebody who at five days presents to emergency department with a full house of symptoms, cracked, bleeding, dry lips especially, then you're going to be thinking Kawasaki straight off. Yeah. However, we know that those children who are the younger ones who have the fewest symptoms actually have the worst disease. Uh, so those children who may be two or three months old and may just have a rash and red eyes and the temperature, these are the ones who have giant coronary artery aneurysms uh, and could be really sick. And unfortunately, because the symptoms, the disease is getting more and more common, uh, we're seeing more and more of these really nasty cases come through our emergency departments. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, it, it, have we been able to identify any particular reasons why, why it seems to be increasing? Um, well, we know that there are two factors. As I say, one is the genetic predisposition, and then you need a second hit. Um, and there was a beautiful study done, which most of your listeners won't have watched there was a panorama program about it in, in the 1990s um, where um, one of my colleagues took a mass spectrometer up in a jumbo jet jet over japan and actually sampled the atmosphere uh, and sampled the the items that were in the troposphere and they showed that when the wind was blowing off the steps of china onto japan there was a huge outbreak of uh, kawasaki disease when the wind was blowing the other way there wasn't any um, right. And so they had a beautiful article called Blowing in the Wind, and it made it into all the major scientific journals. Uh, and still, we know, and we have just shown the same thing that we're just about to publish from the British Paediatric Surveillance Study, um, that there has to be an environmental factor uh, bringing some agent. We don't know whether it's a virus or whether it's a, a candida or a fungus but something that's actually triggering off a Kawasaki response in these susceptible people. Um, we know that people, if they're um, African uh, or mixed African and white descent, they're more likely to get it, um, just like we're seeing with, with COVID. Um, mm. And uh, so there's clearly some genetic 
plus a second hit that needs to come along. Yeah, interesting. Um, so let's say I've, I've, my child's been admitted, we've treated appropriately, um, they go home. What, what typically, how would you typically follow these children up? Is it sort of with regular echoes, that sort of thing? Well, I mean, in fact, if I can just go back a step, yeah. uh, quite a few children um, will be perhaps a little bit better on the first dose of immunoglobulin, but quite a lot of them won't be. Uh, and it's a real mistake to treat them and just send them home too quickly. You really need to make sure they're in hospital for the next 48, 72 hours, that right. inflammatory markers are coming down, that they've responded. Um, and we know that some people need either at least a second dose of the um, immunoglobulin, um, or they may need steroids as well. And in fact, we've just got um, uh, a large grant to do a European study trying steroids as first-line treatment in addition to the immunoglobulin and aspirin um, in many centres across Europe in order to try to reduce these nasty sequelae of the coronary artery aneurysms. So they really have to be checked that the the disease has settled down on first treatment. It's a terrible mistake to send somebody home and they grumble along with a better temperature at home over the next week. And that's where they can do real damage to the coronaries and it's a real missed opportunity. So make sure they're treated properly. Um, when the temperature is settled, you can put them onto a low-dose aspirin, and they'll be go home on the low-dose low aspirin. Uh, we generally see them, um, depends how mild it is, but you see them a couple of weeks after they go home to make sure everything's well, answers the parents' questions. And then at six weeks is the, is the key outpatient appointment. So the way we do it um, is that we do a, a multidisciplinary meeting uh, to see the, the parent um, with a rheumatologist, paediatrician, cardiologist. We may have a psychologist there, um, whoever's needed for that particular child to identify, is this one okay? Have the coronary arteries settled down to normal? In which case, probably one further visit and then discharge. Okay. Is it somebody who's got ongoing problems, in which case they need a lot of support? There's a whole new um, raft of investigations and protocols, which we published just a few months ago um, to, to try to guide people into long-term follow-up. And as you say, it's often, it's always cardiology, but it may be uh, rheumatology as well. It may be um, they have skin conditions, they have expert ongoing, um, they may need psychological support. So it really hits the family's hard, suddenly finding out the child's got a lifelong cardiac condition, which he's going mm. to treatment and which he had nasty um, consequences of. Yeah, and uh, can you... Uh, well, I guess, what sort of stage can you sort of predict the likelihood of that and, and the likelihood of sort of lifelong sequelae? Is, is it fairly early on or does it sort of take several months of, of follow-up scans? To, to no, sort of I mean, that's, that's a good question. We, we've, again, changed our advice. Um, you often get a fairly good idea of when somebody's in hospital, if the scans are okay, they respond quickly to immunoglobulin, they're likely to be the good ones. Um, but at six weeks is the key. Uh, right. If they don't have coronary artery aneurysms there, the child as well, then they're not going to have lifelong consequences. Um, if they do have aneurysms, then they have lifelong follow-up. Uh, it never goes away. Uh, and again, another study we did, we showed that even if their aneurysms appear to get better on scans, they don't behave normally and they can have significant damage even later, 10, 20, 40 years later. Right. It should be really important to treat. For those 
children who sort of have a very mild course and and you're, you're sort of very happy at the six week scan and, and those sorts of things is there sort of anything that they need to watch out for in the future is any sort of advice that they need to let their their gp or, or primary care physician know um and can you get it again so um that that's good there are two useful questions there one is that it just seems like an opportunity to protect their coronary arteries for the future. At the current time, with the current state of knowledge, those children who do not have aneurysms at six weeks, uh, any bit of inflammation has all settled down. We don't believe they have long-term future consequences, but it seems sensible to say, don't smoke, don't exercise, don't get diabetes, um, make sure you run around, treat your lipids, um, and get your blood pressure checked every year. Uh, because those are the things that will do harm for anybody in the future. Um, avoid obesity, uh, all the things that we know are bad for your coronaries. So to get a group of patients and a group of education, um, well, some education to a group of children and their families seems sensible advice, whatever the possibilities. Yeah. Then you ask, can you get it again? Um, people have got it again, but it's pretty uncommon. I've only seen it. I mean, I've seen about 5,000 cases of Kawasaki disease uh, and I've only seen it a couple of times. So it's pretty uncommon, has been described, but it's not something I would particularly worry about. However, we do know that some people um, who get a perhaps just an ordinary cold, um, say four, six, eight weeks after their episode of Kawasaki, they may have a few episodes, a few symptoms again. They may get red eyes or their fingers might peel. Um, mm. And we just said, well, obviously that inflammatory process hasn't quite settled. Um, so that can happen, but that is not a sign of bad news. It's not an evidence that the coronary arteries are being damaged. It's not another episode of Kawasaki disease. And we often warn the parents. Um, and if you see somebody who's just got a bit of a, uh, a red eye uh, six weeks later, you say, well, that's fine. As long as everything else is OK, you wouldn't worry about it. Fine. Um just moving on, Kawasaki disease has, has sort of made more sort of headlines recently, obviously, with, with the current pandemic. And, you know, here in paediatrics and PEM, we were thinking, OK, well, we're thankfully going to be saved the worst of it. Kids don't seem to get the, the, the respiratory disease. But then, of course, this, this phenomenon of PIMS-TS came up with this sort of Kawasaki-like illness, in quotes. Um have you had much involvement with this or much discussion about this? Yes, yes, and it's really interesting. I mean, for us, it's great news because it means that people have heard about Kawasaki disease and they're <laughs> talking about it, um, which I'm delighted with. Um, it seems to be that there's, a, if you like, a final common pathway. There are some people who've had COVID and they tend to be slightly older children, not those under six months, but perhaps mm. those of five, six, seven, eight years old. Um who go on to get uh, an inflammatory syndrome three or four weeks after their episode of acute COVID. And they seem to um, generate a, a response that's very like Kawasaki disease. They can present an incredible shock, um, sick as anything, on the intensive care, needing intravenous um, support, the drugs, uh, or they can uh, have dilated coronary arteries and coronary artery aneurysms. So we don't believe this is Kawasaki disease. We believe that this is similar uh, in that there's a final common pathway that shows rather rather the same. So the Americans call it 
uh, multi-organ inflammatory syndrome dash children or MIS-C uh, and the, the Europeans call it pediatric inflammatory multi-organ syndrome um, which is PIMS. Um, they're the same thing um, and we've now seen hundreds of cases across across the, Europe uh, and America uh, and people have identified the processes going on um, they think that let's say it's a, a final common pathway that's the same it's like Kawasaki disease but it hits a different group of children um, and it's otherwise managed in a very similar way with the steroids that you've heard about for COVID yeah. in addition to the intravenous immunoglobulin. Um, and as you say, it's from from a sort of Kawasaki perspective, it's it's I guess re-raised the profile of something that we need to think about. Um, and just thinking when we sort of started the, the thinking about this podcast, we were, uh, were contacted by the, the UK Foundation for Kawasaki Disease. Um, what, what's sort of been your involvement with them, and, and what do they do? Well, um, the um, UK Foundation, which is called Society, um, with an I at the end, not a Y. Um, and they are a, um, a essentially started out as a group of um, parents um, who wanted to improve the uh, education and the uh, the reach and the awareness of Kawasaki disease. Um, because, as you quite rightly say, it used to be really rare. Um, it used to be something that said, "Oh no, it's too rare. It can't be Kawasaki disease." Well, that's now changed. If you look back over the last 10 years, you know, hospital admissions for Kawasaki disease have gone up fourfold. Um, something that's commoner than rheumatic fever, which everybody's heard about, uh, is obviously something that needs to be taken notice of. And so as part of this, um, the, uh, the foundation, the Society Foundation, has brought together a, a group of scientific advisors, of which I'm one, um, and the idea is to have, you know, rheumatologists, cardiologists, infection diseases, doctors, geneticists, all working together to try to both understand the condition and also to get the message out there so that people should think about it. Now, none of us are saying every child with a rash and a temperature is Kawasaki. That wouldn't be responsible. Mm. But we are saying think about it because the consequences of missing it are terrible. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that having that just just think about it, have it in the back of your mind somewhere that, and then you hopefully won't miss it. Um, from from a personal perspective, obviously, you're a paediatric cardiologist and with, with lots of other interests. Why, why does Kawasaki particularly interest you? Well, it, it's, it's a good question. Um, the, the reason was that we, we found out in the early 90s that some children um, with Kawasaki disease uh, can end up with pulmonary hypertension. Um, mm. And that's my particular research interest when I did my PhD. Um, but also, it's one of those rare conditions that people you know, don't pick up on. And if it's rare, people aren't so interested. They're only interested in the common things. So I'm, I, really, I really believe in being an advocate for those, those children who need to be spoken up for, um, those children that I was seeing more and more um, when I was a consultant in, in London, um, and we now see children who are growing up into the adult spectrum who've had Kawasaki disease. And in Bristol, we run an adult Kawasaki disease clinic for people that have either had it when they're very young or have the lifelong consequences. Uh, and of course, we can advise others across Europe um, in terms of the, the right cardiac investigations, the MRI scans, CT scans, uh, and the right ways to manage the complications of Kawasaki disease. Because obviously some of these children will turn up 
age 15, age 20, um, with heart attacks, secondary to Kawasaki disease. Uh, mm. And it's not something that pediatricians are familiar with. So part of our recent publication was to give people the right doses of drugs, the right protocols. Uh, and it's something that we got agreed between the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, Royal College of Physicians, the College of GPs, College of Emergency Medicine. It's a sort of a unified UK-wide protocol for how to manage these children when they do present with the complications of Kawasaki disease. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much for, for that, Robert. That's been really interesting uh, and, and I'm sure fascinating for, for, for a range of our listeners. We can't, of course, finish without just briefly mentioning Dr. Kawasaki himself, who, who passed away at the ripe old age of 95 in June of this year. No, absolutely. He was, he was uh, one of those people who had the foresight to recognise the, uh, um, the new syndrome, the new condition. Um, if you look up in the books, it used to be called mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome, which in a way was quite good because it gave people a bit of a clue about what it was all about. Um, luckily, we don't call it that more, anymore, so I can't manage to say it all. Um, but he, you know, Tomosaku Kawasaki was uh, a fantastic chap, very humble man. Um, who spent his life teaching and training others uh, and giving to the world of, of paediatrics. Um, so, yes, he's sorely missed. Yes. Robert, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I, I'm sure this will be uh, an extremely useful full podcast for a range of people. So thank you for your time. Thank you, and Thank you.